So I was leaving a friend's house in Kyoto, Japan, and I looked up at the sky and the rain. She was a coming, but I thought I could beat it. And my friend said, hey, you should take an umbrella. No need. Take the umbrella. No need at all. I'm just going downtown. I was going to beat the rain. I took off down the street, not a care in the world. Then, far too quickly, I felt the first fat drops land on my head. That's all right. That's all right. There's still time. Still time. And just like that, the sky turned dark. The rain that was supposed to be coming was already there. A biblical assault fell from the sky. Rain like we were already underwater. Rain. And I'm standing there on a busy street corner. No protection. Looking stupid. And I glance over to my side. And I see this little lady under this great big umbrella. I look down at her. She's staring up at me. And I try to imagine the view from her perspective. Looking up at me, this man, twice as tall as she is from a place that warred with her nation when she was a young woman. And now this man is standing next to her in the rain. She looks up at me and she smiles. She raises the umbrella. I dive underneath it with her. And right then, as the rain pelts down around me, as the streets transform into rivers, I am so grateful and so happy. Well, today, on Stamp Judgment, from PRX and NPR, gratitude. It is the season to consider those things we are most thankful for. So today, we're taking a look back at some of the stories we've done that touch on this theme of being thankful. That's right, we're going around the world, but we're going to start off with master storyteller Joel Ben-Izzy. You see, Joel got some wisdom from the older generation as well, and he learned more than expected about an ordinary piece of fruit. When I was 12, where I lived, which was the suburbs of the suburbs of the suburbs, it was streets after streets after streets leading to freeways, and I hated it. I was stuck taking buses, and as a kid growing up in L.A., cars were kind of sacred. Buses were for losers. They were hot, slow, greenhouses on wheels. I'm the only one riding the bus. That's the other thing. The buses are so bad, nobody rides them. And in protest, I decided I would sit in the seat reserved for elderly and handicapped. So there I was. And here comes a guy. He looks like he's about 100 years old. He's walking with a cane and says to the bus driver, how much is it? It's a quarter. 25 cents. Guy reaches in his pocket. Five, 10, 11, 12. That's it. I see my whole life passing before my eyes. It will be spent on this bus. Now, with a whole bus to sit on, He wants to sit where I am. So I move over to the side. I scoot over. And he sits. And he he looks me up and down. And then he does an odd thing. He reaches into his shopping bag. And he pulls out an orange. Which he holds up for me to look at. And finally he says, What do you think? And I look at the orange and say, I think it's an orange. He said, Yes, it's an orange. But... What do you think of it? Well, I took the orange and I looked at it, and of course, pretty much it's an orange. I looked at the orange for a long time, and he finally said, You don't understand, do you? 
He said, you know, I, I'm not from around here. Duh. He said, I, I came from Germany after the war. Did you study the war? I said, yeah, yeah, I learned about the war in, in school. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, did you learn about the place I came from? A place called Auschwitz. And I said, in fact, I, I actually read an article about it. There was a big sign over the front that said, work makes free. And he got very excited. He said, when you read the article, did they tell you it was black and white? And I said, uh, the pictures in the article were black and white, but the place wasn't black and white. He said, no, it was black and white. He said, what I mean is that the guards wore black, black uniforms with black shiny boots. And you could look at your face and the reflection in the boots and you'd see a, a pale white face. And there on the skin were numbers. Look, he pulled up his sleeve and he said, you see these numbers? They're blue now, but when they burned them in, they were black. Everything was black, white, gray. The fence was black, the sky was gray, the snow would fall. One day it would be white, the next day the ashes from the smokestacks would turn it gray. But what I most remember was the food was gray. In a big barrel they would cook maybe eight or nine potatoes and boil them till they dissolved. And you'd get one bowl of this each day, the black metal bowl. And if you got a piece of potato, you were lucky. So this was what we did. We worked. We waited for our gray soup and tried to stay warm. Now, to stay warm, I would look for paper. I could stuff the paper in my shoes or put it inside my black and white paper uniform to stay warm. And it was one day I was looking near the fence, and, and what did I see? There was a piece of paper, like newspaper. I lifted the paper up, and there in the center was something that I saw and I... I had to stare at it because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe what it was. Well, I reached down, I grabbed it, and I hid it. And you have to understand what a treasure this was. If someone had seen me, they would have killed me just to take it. I hid this orange inside my clothes, and in the barracks I hid it in a crack in the wall. That night, while everyone slept, I took it out. And I held it in my, my hands, and you have to understand how hungry I was. I had eaten nothing but potato water for six months. I wanted to eat that orange like you would eat an apple, but I knew that if I did, I, I would have nothing. So instead, I, I rolled it between my hands. I took my fingernail and I scratched at that orange and I smelled it. As I smelled that orange, I was not in Auschwitz anymore. I was in the land called Palestine. My cousin had moved there before the war, and he had written, Here we grow oranges, and the smell of these oranges fills the air. It's the smell of freedom. For the moment I smelled that, I was free. I opened my eyes. I, I was back in Auschwitz. I, I couldn't eat the orange. I put it back. And the next night I took it out again, and again scratched it, and again smelled it. And I told myself I wouldn't eat it until after a, a very bad day. Well, you didn't have to wait long in Auschwitz for a bad day. Came a few days later a, a selection. A guard stood at the front of a long line. He had a gun with a bayonet on the end. He would stare at the person in front of line and he would point right or left. Those sent to the left went to the showers and they never returned. Those to the right 
went back to the barracks. He looked at me, said, right. And that night, I gathered those around me in the barracks, and they said, I have something. And I brought it out for them. And each one looked at it as I had, because you see, they had forgotten the color. And we passed it around. Each one rolled it in their hands. And finally, when it came back to me, I, I peeled it. And they gave each person a section. I closed my eyes, and they ate mine. And I will tell you, nothing, nothing before or since has tasted so sweet. It was the taste of, of freedom. It was the taste of hope. I gathered up the peels. And I kept them, and I took them out to smell each night to remind me of freedom. Before long came spring. Finally, the snow melted, and there, through the cracks in the cement, plants came up. Tiny green plants. To the guards, they were weeds. To us, they were color. Eventually, the war ended, and I came here. But you see that orange? It, it saved my life. With that, the bus stopped. He got up, and he said, Young man, remember the sweet things in life. We'll have a link on our site to the world of Joel Ben-Izzy, snapjudgment.org. Thank you very much. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. Now, it has been said that those who have lost the most are the most grateful for what they have. Snap Judgment's Anna Sussman follows a man who had everything taken away and his struggle to put one piece back. P-Run lost his dad when he was 15. My father was a good man. He would treat his children all equally and he never gave us a hard time and we know that he, he loved us so much. It was 1975 and the Khmer Rouge swept across Cambodia. They marched everyone to work camps. P-Run's family carried their belongings on their shoulders through the fields. After days of walking, they stopped to rest at a pagoda, and the Khmer Rouge took P-Run's father away at gunpoint. I still had, had hope at the time. I didn't know that he would be killed. P-Run was sent to work in a youth labor camp, pulling a plow. They forced us to work as like cows, pull the plows, which the soldiers holding the plow at the back, you know, and have guns. After the hard labor around 5.30 to 6 o'clock, I was waiting for him on the dirt road at the sunset. I was just hoped that he would come by. But uh, day after day, week after week, and month after month, I never see him come back at all. My hope was fading away. Piran and his family were told that his father was executed by the Khmer Rouge. He was gone. They needed to move on. We just put in our heart that he's dead. We never see him again, so just forget about it. Stop the pain, you know, stop the pain. Piran, his six brothers and sisters, and his mother fled to Canada as refugees. During the Khmer Rouge genocide, four out of seven Cambodians were killed. They had lost only one. They counted their blessings and began to build a new life without their father. All these 30 years since I've been in Canada, I have had dreams about my father. All of a sudden, I saw my father was walking toward me, coming to me, and said, I'm not dead, I'm alive. 
I thought, oh, Dad, you're still alive, you know? It was exciting. Then I woke up in the middle of the night. I think that it's possible that he's still alive. It's just to make me feel happy at the moment. But after about half an hour, I know that I felt sad again because I said, I'm crazy. It's impossible. Then, Piron's brother began to visit a psychic in Ottawa. The psychic, her name is Connie. Connie said, I, I see your father is alive. And my brother said, you're crazy. You must be kidding. He's been dead for a long time ago. 35 years ago, he said. So when he came back home, and he told all that to my sisters, my brothers over there, and my mother. Hey, this Connie told me that our father's still alive. And they were, they were laughing, you know. They were laughing and saying, oh, this uh, psychic is crazy. And it's impossible. But Piran thought the psychic was a sign. You know, I was excited. This is the make me uh, have strong hope that it's possible that my father's still alive. Piran was in Cambodia. He decided to search for his father. I made up the flyers or the posters, thousands and thousands of posters, and also I put the ad in the newspaper. The posters had a picture of his father and Piran's cell phone number. He hopped on a motorbike and crisscrossed the Cambodian countryside. So I went through the jungles. I went Piran's search went on for months. Going through the field. He spent hundreds of dollars and followed countless false leads. I felt exhausted and I felt that he was probably dead. The psychic was wrong, totally wrong. Until one day, a group of women in a market near the Thai border said they saw a beggar who looked just like the man in the poster. The people in the market, they saw a beggar that looks like your father. They told me that he looks like so much like your father. He must be your father. Everyone said, that's him. That's him. <laughs> when I met him the first time, around 5 o'clock, near the market, beside the road, he looked at me, and I looked at him. All of a sudden, he cried, and he cried. But he said, you're not my son. And I said, you're not my father either. The people that are standing around us, they said, that's your father. That's your son. It must be your son. It must be your father because we look so similar. The people asked him, why when you meet him, why you cry? He said, it reminds me about the past, about his children before. But they all dead a long time ago. Piran took the old man to a tea shop. When he managed to stop crying, the beggar explained that the Khmer Rouge had tortured him over and over again. When the war finished, all he remembered was that he once had a family. But after years of wandering the countryside, he came to realize they had all died. It's the only thing that he knew that he had family. But he could not remember faces. He could not remember our names. He said that he walked, he wondering just in case one of us would see him and recognize him and call him. For over 30 years, Piran thought his dad was dead too. So he didn't believe the old beggar was his father, but something stirred inside of him, and he took pity on the man. He took some pictures and bought him some new clothes. Then he went back to his hotel and sent the pictures back to his family in Canada. And they compare his picture with 
the old picture of him. The eyes, eyebrows, the nose, the lips, the mouth, the chin, the jaw. It's all match up. It's just like one person. Piran visited the man every week for months. They grew close to each other and decided to call each other father and son, even if they were not convinced of their biological connection. The old man had the same temperament, the same personality as Piran's dad. Piran and his brothers and sisters were almost convinced they had found their father. But his mother needed one more test. She came up with a plan. The egg versus the pumpkin. She still wanted to test my father. When you go to see him next time, buy a salted eggs. Because your father before loved salted eggs. But also make a stir-fried pumpkin with pork. Anything that with pumpkin, a nice dish, because he never ate pumpkin. So I did that. I bought salty eggs and I made a nice stir-fried pumpkin. Then I was having lunch with him. I said, what do you like? He, he pointed, uh, he wanted salty eggs. So I gave him salty eggs. And then I gave him, uh, would you like pumpkin, stir-fried pumpkin and pork? It's so tasty. He doesn't touch at all the pumpkin and he ate four salty eggs. My mother was laughing, said, that's him, that's him, that's him, no, that's him. So we all have big joy and we celebrate tears and, and joy. For Piran and his family, it was enough. Thanks to Anna Sussman, Renzo Goriel, and Thomas Miller for producing that story. You are listening to Snap Judgment, the gratitude edition. Don't go anywhere because Snap is going to West Africa, Tibet. We're going back in time and right down the road. In just a moment, Snap Judgment. Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. This is the Gratitude episode. And if you haven't seen Mark Bamuti Joseph perform live and you've got the chance, run, do not walk, go see him. He's one of my favorite storytellers in the land. A while ago, Mark came to rock a story for Snap Judgment Live and rock it he did. The first African-American woman that I ever met was a white chick. 
Yeah, from Lubbock, Texas. Molly Melching, big woman. She moved to Senegal 20 years ago to work for UNESCO and never left. She married a Senegalese man, had a daughter, was happy until he left. Molly speaks Wolof, tree. She's a beast negotiator at the marketplace, highly respected within her community. The Senegalese that I meet refer to Molly as an African, American. They refer to me as a black American. When I get off the plane in Senegal, I don't really have much plans. I don't have too much money. I have Molly's number in my back pocket given to me by friends of friends. I have ideas in my head also given to me by friends of friends. They say, boy, in Africa, they're going to love you. Just find the dancers, find the hip-hop. Somebody will adopt you, take you in. Don't worry. Don't trip. Okay, three days into my trip, I've been hustled out of my drawers. And I'm spending money at a pace that's going to leave me homeless in eight days. I got one of those non-transferable tickets says I got to be here for four months. In tears, I call Molly. She invites me to her home in Chess. She says I can stay. Not quite the African I thought was going to take me in. Molly works for an NGO called Tostan. She's a champion of women's health. She works to fight against female circumcision in rural villages. She calls it mutilation. I become her roadie. I sit in the back seat, gazing at endless stretches of endless flatland and wide open sky as we ride from one end of the country to the other. We ride to the middle of nowhere. Nowhere. Come to a stop in front of a single stone building with a thatched roof. Three girls come out, all smiles and grace. They greet. I think, cool, Molly's going to meet with them, and then we're going to be up. Then this boy comes out, and he starts playing a drum, which I think is kind of annoying to have going on during a meeting. (laughs) But who the hell am I? The American. (laughs) So I just smile and listen for my name. Take it all in, all of the nowhere, Africa. Okay, so this kid playing the drum is this village's version of a mass email. Because I don't know where the hell these people come from, but like 100,000 people descend on the courtyard. It's like the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day. Everybody wants to see the one white woman for a thousand miles. Molly is uh, spilling her propaganda about this backwards indigenous ritual, but nobody can hear anything. All the people, all the commotion, everybody trying to see this shit. Finally, Molly comes out. She says, Mark, I need you to distract them. Uh, Molly, I'm a poet and they don't speak English. 
I ain't got no microphone, megaphone, radio, telephone, whatever. How am I going to keep him distracted? Whatever. I'm withering here. I need water, mama. Five minutes later. The entire village. I'm surrounded. My heart is pounding. Africa. Okay. I don't need to astound them. (laughs) Only distract. No microphone, no radio, no English, that's cool. That's cool. That's my whole act. Um, to survive, I become hip-hop empath. I channel the low beginnings. Fires burning all over the Bronx, post-civil rights. Glass ceilings, no lights, no loot. Just do what you feel to the groove. A dance floor uprising of youth. I just pray that they buy it. The future aesthetic, the future's not static, it's moving kinetically, manic, you mimic a cynic, a smith that works with flurried words, the world is this minute, magnanimous moment of future aesthetic, a myth of poetic, cerebral and soulful, vivid, kinesthetic, it's down in your head, in your heart, in your feet, it exists in all three, Woo! okay, all right, they're buying it, while I'm dancing, cracking them up with my shamrocks, Molly is speaking in a language I've never heard of. She encourages the Council of Elders to abandon a centuries-old practice, invites them to modernize their attitude towards women. I think I know another Texan who went into the brown people's country, tried to get them to change their ways. Maybe he should have extended a sign of peace first. Molly extended me and that's how I became an MC the hard way (laughs) without saying a word that was Mark Bamudi Joseph coming to you from Snap Judgment Live I want to thank everyone involved in Snap Live, the storytellers, the artists, the musicians, amazing shows. Come on out and see us at Snap Live. Now, I'm especially grateful, and you know, I would be remiss and chagrined if I failed to mention Mr. Jeff Greenwald. Jeff told us about a trip he took once. Fortunately, he was brave enough not to leave anything out. Well, in the spring of 1984, I was living in Kathmandu. I learned a bit of Nepali and decided to test my mettle out in the mountains. So I flew from Kathmandu uh, to Tumlingtar in far eastern Nepal. And from there I set off north on foot, intent on following the Aran Valley 
It slices through eastern Nepal and it's the world's deepest river gorge, all the way up to the Tibetan border, if I could make it. After a few hours on the muddy, slippery trail, I was completely exhausted and covered with leeches, and I knew I would need some help. So I stopped into a wayside town, and I was quickly able to hire a, a porter. I was like a friendly teenager named Norbu. Uh, the word Norbu means wish-fulfilling gem in Tibetan, and that's exactly what he was to me. He was also like a Sherpa Spider-Man. He just threw on my huge backpack with ease, and we set off together towards the mountains. As we walked over the course of the next couple of days, the trail became drier and also higher, and it was really this beautiful, dark, loamy earth carpeted with brilliant red rhododendron petals. One morning, while we were making breakfast together, Norbu expressed a wish to visit a nearby village called Bala. His grandparents, as it turned out, were the headman and headwoman, the Tulo Manche and Tulo Keti of the hamlet. And he hadn't seen them for like five years since he was, I don't know, like 12 years old. It would thrill them, he said, if we stopped in there for a night. Well, I was completely down with this, but with one condition. We could not allow ourselves to be a nuisance. It had been a long winter, a wet winter. Food would be very scarce. This was a poor part of Nepal. We had brought our own rations of noodles and dried meat, and we would prepare our own food. Norbu like wasn't having this. He said, they'll insist, you'll be an honored guest, this is the way we do it around here, you know, you can't stop them from cooking for you. And I said, okay, okay, but just please just make sure they don't overdo it. Well, we arrived in the the mid-afternoon and and this uh, little village of Bala was an oasis of tiny mud-walled homes that are sort of uh, nestled between these high terraced hills, really a gorgeous setting, and corn and chili peppers were hanging, drying from the rafters of the houses. As he had imagined, Norbu was greeted like a returning astronaut. Um, as for me, I was like this exotic alien who he'd brought home, and the local kids ran over to stare at my nose and tug at my beard, or maybe they were staring at my beard and tugging at my nose, and they were, they were pinching the weird fabric, you know, of my high-end expedition parka. Well, of course, despite my protests, Norbu's grandparents, or this wizened old couple who lived in the biggest house in Bala, they insisted on preparing us dinner. Norbu gave me a flask of the local rakshi. It's really, you know, sort of triple X whiskey. And I took it and climbed up a nearby hill to watch the sun as it fell behind the the mountain peaks to the north. It was just beyond spectacular. And the more I drank, the better I felt. It was just physically, literally, emotionally, it was the high point of my life. Time passed. I finished the rakshi, (laughs) the whole bottle. And soon I heard a rhythmic ringing of a cowbell. This was the signal that dinner down below was ready. So I found my way back down to... uh, Norbu's grandparents' house. Now, there was no electricity in Bala, or really in any of these villages. The single large room of Norbu's grandparents' home was illuminated with these wonderful little ceramic dishes holding yak butter and cotton wicks. And it gave the room this just beautiful, warm glow and even this kind of yakky scent that I loved. Everybody who was anybody had been invited and they filled the low wooden benches that had been placed along the mud plastered walls. Now in the center of the room, in the center of the swept dirt floor, 
There was a single wooden chair draped with a silk brocade and cushioned with a hand-loomed Tibetan carpet, and this would be my place of honor. I sat down, and the room fell silent. Norbu's grandmother, wearing her finest Tibetan shuba, turned from the hearth and approached me. She was carrying a very big copper tray, and upon the tray there was just this mountain of rice. Next to the rice was a bowl of this beautiful, dark, thick, fragrant dal, lentil stew, very traditional food in Nepal. She'd also prepared a side dish of takari, vegetable, in this case, boiled greens and potatoes, as well as a small bowl of spicy achar, kind of chili paste. And atop this already bountiful offering, there was a fried egg, which is a rare treat in these remote villages. My heart almost broke when I saw the crowning touch a drumstick and thigh. The family had killed and roasted one of their precious chickens in our honor. Norbu's grandmother, uh, she put the heavy tray on my lap. All eyes were upon me. I was just totally giddy. My head was spinning from the rakshi and from the altitude. A hundred thoughts were racing through my head. Self-consciousness, fascination, gratitude. Norbu was sitting there next to his grandfather. He looked at me, he winked at me, I winked back. Just looked around the room, grinned at everybody, and just completely distractedly, without thinking at all, I crossed my legs. The tray full of food overturned and toppled onto the dirt floor. For an infinite moment, time just stood still. The room was this tableau of shocked faces, and none of them was more shocked than my own. All I wanted to do was like somehow turn back the hands of the clock like one minute, and then it became two minutes, and then five minutes. I just finally I just leaped to my feet. Naramro, I, I, I just yelled, staring down at the ruins of my meal on the dirt floor. Mafgarnos, this is terrible. I'm, I'm so sorry. Well, Norbu's grandfather, he stood up calmly and he walked toward me. He, placed his firm hand, he gripped my shoulder, and he turned me to face his guests. Ramrocha, he stated calmly. It's fine. It's good. In fact, it's wonderful, isn't it? He scanned around the room. Isn't it? So tentatively, heads began to nod, and the guests began to breathe again. Suddenly, I understood. Here I was, this fabulously wealthy Westerner, an emissary from those powerful nation on earth. I'd blundered into Bala and been greeted with reverence, actually even awe. But in truth, I was just really nothing but another pale-faced query, you know, a foreign klutz who couldn't hold his rakshi. Well, the story stayed with me. It just haunted me, you know, uh, through the rest of the track. And when I got back to Kathmandu, I just... I started to tell my friends about it. I realized two things, that when I told them the story, I could, I could see them sort of taking on some of the shame, and I could feel myself kind of letting go of it at the same time a little bit. And I realized that it was sort of like this huge, hot thing that I was holding on to, but when I threw it out into the world and other people caught a hold of it, I somehow was rid of it, at least temporarily. In my opinion, this was how I really got started as a storyteller by having to tell that story and just getting the weight of that plate off my chest. The amazing Jeff Greenwald, author of Snake Lake and all kinds of other books, 
We're going to have a link to jeffgreenwald.com on snapjudgment.org. And now, we've got a little something Stephanie Fu mixed up for you. Snap Judgment asks, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? That's what Thanksgiving is all about. You know that. Thankful for I got my daughter and I'm alive. For my health and my family. My new granddaughter, she was just born at 1030 this morning. I'm thankful I got my job back. And I'm thankful for the man who let me wake up this morning. I know one thing I'm thankful for today. Popeye's chicken. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Get fucked to kind. I'm thankful the woman whose car I hit didn't contact my insurance agency. I'm thankful for Ryan Gosling. I'm grateful for ibuprofen, vitamin I. I am thankful for the Niners being 9-1. I'm thankful for people to do the dishes. Thankful for being here in this great country called America. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very, very much. Thank you very, very, very much. You're welcome. Snap Judgment. The gratitude episode We'll be right back. Snap Judgment, the gratitude episode. We've been digging into stories about thankfulness and gratitude. And I know one of the things I'm most grateful for is family. But what if you don't even know where you come from? Rita Daniels spoke to Tracy, who told us her story. So I didn't know my dad growing up. When I was maybe seven or eight, I think I started asking my mom who my dad was. And she told me that she didn't know. And I just took it for granted. I didn't grow up with a dad, so I always sort of assumed that I was a fatherless child. Jump ahead, I'm 22 years old, and I call her up one day to tell her that I am going to be running the kitchen at this retreat center where I live. She's a chef. So I called her up to tell her that, hey, cooking runs in the family. (laughs) At which point she says to me, you know, that's not all that runs in the family. You're a lot like your father. I was taken aback, jaw drop. I asked her what she meant and she said, well, now that I see who you are, I know who your dad is. Wow, a little nugget of who I am. I took the information and I just kind of sat with it for a few months. And then this one day, it was time. I got to find my dad. I was compelled. So 
I called my mom and she gave me his name and she said, the only other thing I know about your dad is that he was studying with a teacher named Trungpa Rinpoche when I last saw him. Trungpa Rinpoche is a Tibetan teacher and had founded a college. I called and a woman picked up the phone and she asked me what I was calling for. And I tried to sum it up as best as I could. I'm calling, I'm looking for my dad. He was a student of Trungpa Rinpoche's. She said to me, what's your dad's name? And I told her and she said, oh, I know him, which just floored me. She gives me my dad's phone number. I was really scared and I just put myself aside. Like on automatic pilot, I would think I was disembodied, but I had enough control to dial and put the receiver to my ear. It rang a couple of times and he picked up the phone. The phone rings and I pick up the phone. And, and I heard his voice and I heard myself in his voice. It was so wild. This is very sweet, vulnerable voice saying, hello, is Ken there? I'm sure that my voice was shaking when I talked to him. I said, who is this? And I said, this is Tracy. I said, well, Tracy, how could I help you? It was this long gap. And then she said, you're my father. You're my father. Yeah, I'm your daughter. I'm your daughter. And he said, oh, Tracy, Tracy. <laughs> and it was such a rush from the tip of my toes to the top of my head. Everything came kind of into sharp focus. And I had no idea what his response was going to be. It was so gentle and receptive. It was tender, it was sad, and it was very happy. And he was very happy. He was. I was really pleased. It was the best response he could have given me. We talked for quite a while, downloaded who we are and where we've been. And, and somehow time just collapsed. And that whole 22-year period was a fleeting moment, and we were reunited. So we wrote to each other, sent each other photographs of ourselves. and It was almost spooky when she wrote me a letter, and her handwriting looked very much like mine. And I was shocked to see how similar our style of language it was quite amazing. And our interests were very much alike. It was like, whoa. I thought that I was a perfect argument for nature versus nurture. <laughs> nature wins. Nature trumps. There's no doubt in my mind. And I get to fill in some of the details of how my mother and father met, as well as how it came to pass that I didn't know him growing up. My dad was pretty actively seeking himself as a young man. I was at the time living in Los Angeles. Running a yoga center in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, my mom shows up at the yoga center. Uh, there was a woman, a young woman. And finds out that my dad was going to be driving across the country. From L.A. to New York. And they arranged that she's going to get a lift to go visit her family. She asked if she could join myself driving across. And the story goes... We're on our way to nowhere. That somewhere along the lines, maybe in Utah or somewhere in the middle of the country, outdoors under the stars, a beautiful night, they sleep together. They have one night together. We make love. And we got to the East Coast afterwards. She went on her way, I went my way. 
They both go their separate ways before either of them know that she's pregnant. She discovers she's pregnant, decides she's going to go to a little island in the Balearic Ocean, and she gives birth there. And she gets back to the U.S., and she looks up my dad. I said, hi, I haven't heard from you for a year. She says, well, guess what? I gave birth to your daughter. I said, what? I have a daughter? I didn't even know you were pregnant. Why didn't you call me? She said, well, I was going to Spain, and I thought it would be too much of a hassle all around. Needless to say, it was a little bit shocking for him, and they realize that their lives are moving in two very different directions. She said, you know, I have a boyfriend now, I have a life, you have a life, and you don't have to be the father, you don't have to be the godfather. Maybe it's best if we made believe this never happened. And it would just be more simple for everyone if they don't stay in contact. It seemed to be convenient. What we never considered was Tracy's mind. What Tracy might think as an individual as she got older couple months after we spoke on the phone for the first time. We meet at the airport, and there was no question that we were looking at family. We embraced. We were just overwhelmed getting to meet each other for the first time. I've never felt then or since then that she was angry with me, that I didn't raise her. To have gone through what I went through with Tracy, and not to be rejected, but for that person to reach out to me, which she did find me, opened my heart so much. Decided that it was the perfect opportunity. I moved in with my dad. And we, we wound up living together. Yeah, it was a really unique experience. and There was a whole development of family. I had my dad, her grandfather, move in. We got to know each other. We got to spend time together. and There was nurturing that happened when she was in her 20s and on. And we took off from that and developed a very close-knit relationship. I love him dearly. It's fun. We have a lot of fun together. Now she is on the verge of having a baby. I'm 39 and I'm having my first baby. And lo and behold, I'm a grandfather then to her child. He'll fly out after the baby's born. And the continuity and the blessings keep going if you open your heart. That story was produced by Rita Daniels. Now, it is a feature of the modern age that when we face some of life's most difficult challenges, we're alone. We're apart from the people that matter to us, the family, the friends. And it's in these moments that we're forced to depend upon the kindness of strangers. Well, there is no kinder stranger than Francis Liberty. I came home after finishing my time at nursing school and I said to my father, I'm going to join the army. And he said, no, you're not. And I went down and joined. Women of America, march with Uncle Sam's army. Join the WAC. This is Frances Liberty, but most people call her Lib. The year is 1941. World War II is underway and nurses are in big demand. They weren't really prepared to handle women in those days. Nurses were classified as lower than low. But to Frances, this didn't matter. So she enlisted, and like all the other soldiers, had to complete basic training. We pitched tents, we hiked, we climbed walls, 
we rolled around in mud. We had people shooting at us, you know, under the barbed wire and all that stuff. That's when I learned to keep my fanny down. It was also very exciting for me. Remember, I came from Catholic hospital and Catholic schools. So this was a big world to me, taking a shower with everybody else, you know, and all that stuff. After World War II, Frances was sent to the Korean War and then to Vietnam, where she was promoted to lieutenant colonel. That's a lot of power to give to a woman, a lot of power. But perhaps one of her greatest powers was her creative ways to ease the suffering of her patients. I used to get the nurses that were pretty and made them use cologne and stuff and go in there and sit with the boys that were that badly hurt. Because I figured, if they're going to die, let them see an American woman that smells good, you know? For some patients, it was her compassion that brought them comfort. So I'm saying my rosary beads and sitting there and this fellow says to me, what's that noise? I said to him, I'm saying my rosary beads. He said, I'm Jewish. I said, you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, same guy. So we sat there for a while, and he was really abrupt. Well, he was dying, you know. So pretty soon, the OR came in, and they said, we're going to take him, Lib. I said, okay. So as I was getting up to leave, he said to me, let me have those beads. They may be lucky. I said, oh, they're more than luck. So I gave him the beads. And I figured, chalked it up to another pair of rosary beads lost, because I lost a lot of them that way. The next day, I'm in the hall, and one of the nurses came along to me, and she says, you know that last guy we took? And I said, yes. She said, he did better than the others. He's already gone to Japan. I said, isn't that marvelous? I was there about maybe a couple of months, and I got a package. I don't know how this guy found me, but it was a pair of rosary beads, and it said, I'm keeping the others. So I'm home and retired now. This happened maybe 10 years ago. I get a phone call. I don't know how this guy finds me. He's in New York. He's the vice president of a bank. He said, I just want you to know that in my desk is your rosary beads. And he said, and another thing, I just had a granddaughter born in Israel. And he said, she's Liberty Ann. I said, how could you do that to a kid? He said, I always talked about you, and my son wanted her name that. I cried. <laughs> On the ground, in the air, serve your country everywhere. Join the Women's Army Corps today. Join the Women's Army Corps today. Big thanks to the Veterans History Project for providing audio for that story. Now it's that time, Snappers. But don't be upset. Be happy. Rejoice, because the whole Snap universe awaits. Full podcast episodes movies, music, and your stories if you care to share at snapjudgment.org Facebook, be my friend be my Facebook friend be my friend, Twitter tweet, tweet, now today's episode was produced by myself and some of the best, kind hearted, generous people in the land, Team Snap now, I don't get to tell them enough, but yeah, I really I really do love me some Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich and, and you know what? I, I say group hugs all around. I want to hug Rita Daniels, Stephanie Fu, Anna Sussman. Come come get me some love. Now, Pat Masidi Miller, Renzo Gordon, you cannot hide. Where is Will Urbina 
and Lindsay Lee Keel. I see you under that table. I see you. Now, when somebody makes a mess in the kitchen and nobody's trying to fess up, don't blame the dog. It was probably the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It's all right, though. I'll get a wet mop to that in the morning. Many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, putting the public in public media one public at a time. PRX.org. And, now, you know this is not the news, right? Because this is nobody's news. In fact, you could bet your very last dollar on a lottery ticket from your local liquor store. Win big. Celebrate with all your friends. Start house shopping. Go to the Lamborghini dealership. Only to discover that it was a four, not a seven. Still, still, you would not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is in 